we're talking about this story uh, in some regards as we are in this collection called Advance the Story. And this collection is reminds us that that the story of Christ is important, but there is another story that accompanies the gospel story. We'll speak of that. Every good story that I know of, whether it's a movie or a novel or a, a, a theater play or whatnot, every good story I know has a plot, but not only a plot, but it has a subplot. So just think for a minute. Let's think about Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, the plot is that the lost uh, ark or the holy grail or whatever he's looking for needs to be found. And here's the hero in Indiana Jones, and the plot is that he's going to find that. But along the way, as in most movies, he meets a gal. And he uh, they don't like each other at first. And you've seen so many of these subplots that you think you all, you can predict where it's going and they're fighting with each other, but there comes that time where there's a tipping point of romance. And this is the subplot. That tipping point happens and you can predict somewhere about three quarters of the movie there's going to be the big smooch. And there'll be the big smooch and there's that plot, but they're still looking for the lost ark of the Holy Grail or whatever they're looking for. Every good story has that. And so does does life. There is a plot for followers of Christ, but there's also a subplot that's critical. Often, as we'll see today, the subplot gets overlooked. Quite frankly, in church culture, where we of all people on the earth should be willing to face-to-face with this subplot, take it on and contend, we of all people often not only overlook it, but we brush it under the carpet because what we're going to talk about today is difficult. It's challenging. And it's often unspoken. We operate in a church culture where we would rather be inspired, be comforted, be encouraged, than unsettled and disturbed. So today, my job is to disturb you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm At times, the word of God reaches down to those levels. And as we look at this collection, we are on this earth to, to, as we would say in our vision book, we've pared it down. The vision book, by the way, is very subservient to the book, which is the Bible. But we've tried to take what Christ has said and let's pare it down that our task, our assignment on this earth, we could pare it down to four things. Love God. Love other people, tell others about Christ, and make disciples. That is the story that we are uh, uh, projecting. However, that story means nothing if it is not coupled with authenticity. There has been there have been too many cases in our culture where, as Christians, we speak the gospel story, we tell others about Jesus, we're advancing that story, and yet the story of our lives doesn't match up with what we're saying. In other words, people look at us, and if we're going to say we're different, we have to live differently, we have to act differently, we have to be differently, we have to fight for things that are different, we have to prioritize things that are different. 
And unfortunately, as we all know, that in the Christian culture, in the church, the divorce rate is just about the same as those outside the church. As we also know, Christian men, the percentage of Christian men that view pornography is just about the same as those outside the church. And for that reason, we have to reassess. There are sometimes we have to say, stop. And today is a story of stopping. There are those moments in history where God says, we can't go further. You are promoting a story and it's not matching up with your life. There are times where God had to say, like in the case of Noah, I can't let the story be advanced like this anymore. I'm going to have to stop the operation, hit the pause button, and start all over again so that we can advance the story as I intended to advance it. It is tough for us because we're operating in a forward motion all the time to stop and say, I can't, we, we got to reassess. In the wilderness with Moses, God at that moment said, I can't advance, I can't let you advance my story anymore. I've got to stop it. And he killed off a whole generation because he didn't want them to continue in the story as the way they were advancing it. Last week we saw the nation of Israel. They were exiled for many, many years and decades because they were advancing the story, but their, their life story, God working through them, didn't match up with who they said they were. Today, we're going to look at the story, the plot and the subplot of a man named Jerubael. Now, if I said by a show of hands, how many people know who Jerubael is? My guess is that not many hands would go up. If I asked the parents in the room, how many of you have named your child Jerubael? I'm guessing no hands would go up. At least I don't know any kids by the name of Jerubael. But you may know this man as a different name. Gideon. Now, some of us have seen this story many times, but there are layers to this story. And this is a story that has a magnificent plot, but it has a second plot, a subplot. It's a, it's a story about a man with two names. It's a story about, uh, uh, that has two altars. It's a story that has two battles. And when we think of the story of Gideon, if you know that, we often forget the second name of Gideon, Jerubael. And we often forget the second altar. We often forget the subplot. And that's where we're going to go. We're going to be today in the, in the sixth book of the Bible, Judges. So if you have your Bible with you, I'm going to encourage you to, to uh, turn there. If not, you'll see the words up on the screen. I once again encourage you to bring your Bible. Why? Because it's personal and you can take your Bible, you can write in it, you can underline. There, there are places in my Bible that have these two words, Steve, colon, you. Where God says, Steve, this is, I'm, I'm throwing it across your home plate, man. And you write, you underline, you go back to that later like, oh yeah, I remember that. So if you, if you don't have your Bible today, that's not a guilt trip, but it is an encouragement and urge for you to bring it uh, along the way. If you don't know how to buy a Bible, you, you may not because it's overwhelming. It's like the toothpaste aisle, you know, where there's uh, a million different kinds and you're like, gee, I just wanted to brush my teeth. And somebody asked me after the first service, I, I'm lost here. I don't know how to, so don't be embarrassed. If you, if you need some help with that, we'd be more than happy to, um, to, to, to talk about that. Now, Gideon. Jerubael. Let me give you the, the, the backdrop to this story because it's important. 
God set a plan in motion. It began around Genesis chapter 12 where he tapped a man named Abraham. Abraham was chosen to be the father of many nations. God was going to tap in and hover over this nation to advance the story. This was the the people that followed God at that time. They were given the heavy responsibility to advance the story in the world. And the story was this. Here's what God looks like. God chose this country, this nation to advance the story in the world. And when you read the first five books of the Bible... What you see is this community living together, especially beginning in the book of Exodus and then Numbers and Deuteronomy, Leviticus, these people living together. And it was how they lived together that made an important um, projection into the world. It wasn't just that they believed in God and they, they had their own little personal religion, but the world was looking on to see how they loved one another as they migrated through a wilderness to a destination that God had promised to them, which we call that small strip of real estate, Israel. It is still the hottest piece of property on the planet. And that is because God has chosen this nation and they're still in the story and they still will play a significant part of the story. They always will. They always have. God chose this location and for five books in the Bible, he labored with this people to get them there. And all along the way, he would have to correct them and recalibrate them and spank them and recorrect them, encourage them, empower them because he chose them to advance the story. The baton now is clearly in the hands of us as Christ followers. The responsibility is heavy. The, the baton that has been handed to us, we cannot take lightly. Sometimes life has a way of, of eroding that importance, does it not? Our jobs and our schedules and whatnot, but we can't forget that the primary purpose for us on earth as Christ followers is to advance the story of God to really live out who He is. Now we get to the, to the, to the sixth book of the Bible, which is the book of Joshua. Now, Joshua is a story of conquest. And now God is using Joshua and and through battle after battle after battle, he moves them into the promised land and God gives them that piece of property that he's been promising forever and for, for many, many years. And they're finally there. And now we arrive at the seventh book of the Bible, which is the book of Judges. And when we arrive at this intersection, it's a heartbreaking intersection because the baton carrier of God has dropped the baton with an earth-shattering resonance. He has, the, the, the nation of Israel has once again dropped the ball and God had to say, I got to stop. I can no longer allow you to be the salesman on the floor who's promoting the business. Have you ever gone through a business? And they promote customer service, but it's awful. And you would tell that employee, this is not your gig. You should be in the stock room or something, but definitely not out front because you're giving a wrong image, a wrong brand of the company that we're trying to be. This is where we find ourselves in the sixth chapter of Judges. First verse. A heartbreaking word. We begin this story with a heartbreaking word. And I'll remind you that it is the common words in the scripture that are riveting. We begin this way and we'll bring it up here on the screen. 
we began with this word, again. Again. As if God were to say, we're back here again. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, it was God who stopped the story. He gave them into the hands of the Midianites. See, I don't believe all economic recessions and war and diseases are all human made. I do believe that there are times where God says, I've got to get your attention. Do I have it? See, if God speaks like this in a tender voice and only speaks of love and joy, he doesn't always have our attention. But hey, sometimes he needs to do that. Sorry for those of you that have a pacemaker. And this is one of those moments. He's like, I've got to stop it. So he gave them into the hands of their enemies, the Midianites. Now watch verse 2. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. Don't forget, these are the story advancers. When the story advancers planted their crops, the Midianites, their, their co-equal enemies... The Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the company, uh, the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for the story advancers. Neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count this enemy, to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the story advancers that they cried out to the Lord for help. A pattern that repeats itself over and over and over, not only in the Old Testament, but if we're honest, it repeats itself in our lives as well. The words ravaged and impoverished don't belong with the story advancers. This was not the story that God wanted to advance into the world. Can you imagine those who were promoting, those that were the light of the world, those that were the baton carriers were hitting, were hiding themselves in caves and rocks and mountains and all those things. And God would say, I can't let this happen. This enemy was formidable. It was, it was, they were over the top scary. In fact, I saw a picture this past week of a, of a defensive player on the Buffalo Bills. His name is Mario Williams. And Mario Williams, he's the guy that comes, if you're the quarterback, you don't want to see him coming straight at you. And Mario Williams, he wears a special kind of contact lenses for the game. And uh, you think, well, what, like some kind of athletic uh, gear or something? No, 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 no. He wears special contact lenses to intimidate the quarterback as he's coming at him, all 300 pounds of him, uh, right? At, and, and this is what his contact lenses look like. Bright red. See, this is a picture of the Midianites, man. They were tough and they were coming after the quarterback. And you can imagine, ah! And that was the flavor of the story advancers. Instead of running and contending and being the light of the world, the story advancers were, ah! As these red-eyed creatures were coming toward them, more than people could number. Now what we have is a perfect setting for an adventurous story. God comes along, he sends an angel to tap this man named Gideon. And he's going to take 
the nation of Israel against the enemies and were set up for the perfect plot. We got the good guys, we got the bad guys, and we got a hero who's going to lead the charge. The only thing we're missing is a gal. And it never comes in this particular story. Sorry to let you down. There's a better subplot. <laughs> Gideon is tapped by God. And we would look at this and we say, now, if you're reading the story, this is the plot. We have the story advancers who are hiding. They're the good guys. And you got these evil, uh, these evil enemy guys who have got red contacts in and they're more than people can count and all that. And now the angel of God has come down. He's tapped the man like Gideon. He says, Gideon, mighty warrior, I'm going to use you to lead my people out and fight against this unbelievable army. And we're like, okay, the story is set. And that's the plot. Now what Gideon does is what we often do. I don't know about you, but when I'm watching a movie like Indiana Jones, don't you, don't you kind of start thinking you are? Huh? Huh? Anybody? Please say yes. All right. I do. You know, uh, don't, uh, okay, guys, I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to men. Honestly, don't, when you watch like a kung fu movie, don't you go in the bedroom privately and kick the bed or something? I, I do, you know? Like, yeah! And then you hurt your back, like, dang, why did I do that? You know that, you know, that move? You chop the pillow, yeah, because you're too chicken to do cinder blocks, but you still feel good, you know. When you're reading the story of Gideon, like, oh, God, I would like to be that guy. I'd like to be part of the plot. There's all of us, every single one of us, I hope, that you are living a life where you say, man, I want my life to mean something. I want it to have some kind of purpose. I want a Gideon purpose, especially when it comes to spiritual things. I want to do something for God. And that's the plot. And all of us get excited. Like, sign me up, man. I want that. So here's what Gideon does. He says, let's do, let's sign a contract. See, back in the day, what they would do is build an altar and they would sacrifice on that altar. Now, I know that's different from our culture today, but what we would do is say, okay, let's shake on it or let's sign it. Let's put a, let's do a guarantee or a covenant or a contract or whatever that was. But back in the day, Gideon said to the angel Lord, hey, wait right here. Wait right here. I'll be right back. And so he runs and he gets a sacrifice. He gets an ammo. He brings it back and he's got this sacrifice and he himself, his idea, he builds an altar. This is the altar that we want everyone to see. I signed up to fight in the plot. And let me build this altar for you, God, so that everyone can see. See, in that day, the definition for that sacrifice, I brought it for you today. It is the irrevocable giving over of things. I love that word irrevocable. You know why? It's serious. For those of you being baptized today, this is an irrevocable commitment that you make. It is a commitment that you don't want to take back next Thursday. It is a commitment where you're saying, God, I am giving myself to you irrevocably. What a, what a tremendous, powerful word. I'm committing myself, God, for life to go on and on and on. Have me, God, irrevocably. How powerful it was for Gideon to step forth and say, God, 
You've got me irrevocably. So watch what happens in Judges chapter 6 and verse 24. So Gideon, he built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. And to this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abizrites. In other words, it's still there and the plaque is still there and it's still probably got his name on it. There's a botanical gardens here in town. I go there. I love it. Selby Gardens, you may know it. I think everything, including the water fountain, has a name tag on it. This water fountain, have you ever noticed if you've ever been there? This water fountain was given by Bill and Judy Smith, you know, whatever. And so everything on it, there's a tree. There is a tree with a plaque on it. Somebody gave a tree. I'm like, really? The tree has like been here 100 years. Who gave that tree? That's the way we are. We like our name on a plaque. We want everyone to see. See, it's still standing. Hey, everybody is still standing here today. That's the plot. But God had something else in mind. But we have something in mind. We have this tremendous ending. Am I like, what? you know, we, we think in these terms like, this is tremendous because I'm the hero. I get to be part of this plot. Yesterday as I was working, I was listening to uh, some Brahms. I know, I lead an exciting life. Um, I was listening to a piano piece by, by Brahms, some classical music. And it's got a triumphant ending. And, and, uh, when, when my wife was in the kitchen, she was listening and, you know, at the ending, I heard this little clap and, you know, cause it feels, it just feels like that. Have you ever heard music when you read the Bible? Do you feel like it is coming? So when I, when I'm reading the story of Gideon, I was just thinking, I was working on it. And I was thinking about this ending and I was thinking, when we hear this music, this is how we want our ending to be. It goes kind of like this. You feel the swell. This is the ending you want. That's the way we want, right? Well, I didn't write it, so do. There's a problem. You see, this was the altar that Gideon wanted to build. But God said, I got another altar for you, son. I thank you for the commitment to the plot. I thank you for irrevocably giving to yourself. But before you advance my story, first word again, I've got to know something. I've got to get down to a place in your inner person that most people won't go to. And I've got to get there because if I don't, you'll be advancing the story inauthentically. You see, God wants to go down to our deepest parts. And on the outside, you think, Steve is such a wonderful person. I've had so many people, and I'm grateful for it, who tell me, Steve, I love you. You don't know me. If you ask my wife, she goes, don't love him. He is not all that great. (laughs) It's easy to see Sunday morning, Steve, but I want to tell you quite honestly, and I've shared these things with you, That even though you say, well, I love the preaching, I love this, but there are things underneath the hood that God would say, I want to deal with those in your life, Steve. So when you get up and speak on a Sunday morning without a shadow of a doubt, even though you haven't perfected, I know that you're fighting for those things and your message will be authentic. God wants to get with us at that level. Christ was approached by many people who wanted to sign up for the plot. For example, Luke chapter 9, verse 57. Watch. 
As they were walking along the road, a man said to Christ, Hey, sign me up. Where's the contract? I will follow you. Listen to the word. Wherever you go. Irrevocably. I don't care if it's here, if it's there, if it's Pittsburgh, if it's Cleveland, if it's Bradenton, if it's there. I'll go wherever you want. And Jesus said, I like the plot. But son, here's the subplot. I'm able to see something in your life that others are not seeing and you like comfort. So Jesus replied, there ain't no motel in this operation. You see, the rich young man came to him. He says, look, I got where you're going. I want you to sell everything because he saw the subplot. He may say to us, hey, I'm glad you're willing to advance my gospel story, but the story of your life underneath the hood, Steve, you're a coward, a coward. You got to work on some courage. You got a habit that's got, that's in charge of you. You lose your temper too quickly. You worry about everything. You're an unforgiver. Whatever that is, you have to be able to answer. And my guess is that as I'm talking, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That there is that thing. That's southern. There is that thing. Or I personally have a collection of things that I could rattle off. Here's three or four of them right here that God said, oh, see, this is the altar that I want to build. So he does. Watch Judges chapter 6 and verse 27 or 25. Sorry, Judges 6, 25. Gideon has built his public altar for all to see and he has signed up. Now that same night, God doesn't let any grass grow under his feet. The Lord said to Gideon, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to your dad's property and take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, and tear down your father's altar to Baal, which was a false religion. And I want you to cut down the Asherah pole beside it. It was a wooden pole that in that religion and the false religion, they did unspeakable immoral acts that I won't even name today. And he said, see, I'm seeing all this. And Gideon, you're getting ready to fight Thousands upon thousands upon thousands and your chicken with your own father. That's the subplot. He said, so here's what I want you to do. Verse 26. After you've torn all that trash down, then build a proper kind of altar. May I stop right here and just remark how I, how the word of God is so amazingly brilliant. You know why? It was written by the same person who made you. See, no psychology book reaches this level. No psychology book or self-help book gets down to, you see, there's a different kind of altar. There's a different kind of irrevocable giving of yourself. It's the proper kind of altar, but you've got to tear something down. You've got to kill something. You've got to trash something. Whatever word you want to put on. You've got to tear that down. And then on top of it, watch. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God. On top of all this junk, you've got to make Him at high. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down and offer the second bowl as a burnt offering. God can look with under the hood within ourselves and he knows what that thing is or that collection of things are in your life and he says before you go out and start blowing the trumpet I would like the privilege of you not building an altar but I'm asking you to build an altar and that altar is in the deepest part of us 
And if we're willing to say, okay, God, this is an altar that most people won't see. You think, what are you talking about? I've given you examples of my own life so that you hear transparency from here so that I have the hope that you can be transparent. I've struggled with overeating and I constantly work at not falling into to gluttony. That's what it was for me. I struggle with having enough courage, enough firmness because I was grown up in the South and Southern ways sometimes mean cowardice ways. Y'all come back here. I love you guys and shut the door. I hope they never come back again, right? That's the way it works. I moved from the South up to Boston. You know what they do in Boston? Get out. Don't ever come back. Sure, they tell you like it is. I was like, oh, I'm, I really dug that when I moved up there. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty cool. They're right to it. Whatever your deal is, and I got a couple more, but I'm not sharing them with you. I've got a couple more. <laughs> You're like, hey, somebody started taking notes all of a sudden. <laughs> Whatever those things, God would say, let's build an altar of those things. The subplot arena. And begin to tear those things down. Listen, Christian. These are the things that we just keep going on and don't want to talk about because we carry a big Bible and go to work and think that where everything's groovy. But it's God would say, but I want to do an inner work in you. So this collection, if you you'll allow me to remind you, the angle from which I come was was inspired by this musical production that's on Broadway now by the pop artist Sting. You might remember, I told this story just a couple weeks ago. Sting is a, an, a pop artist who sold tens of millions of recordings. And he wrote this story called The Last Ship. And it was a story of his own life. He grew up in a place called Walls End, England. And in that community, every young man was expected to work in the shipyard. And in that shipyard... Uh, no one ever asks, so what do you want to do when you grow up? Because that was their destination. Now, Sting was writing these songs. He is an expert writer. He's tremendous. At, I, I love his music, uh, most of it. And, and so he's writing this music, and he's writing for this production. And he had a producer that came to him and said, you know, this song just doesn't work. I actually found the song this week, and I listened to it. It is a brilliant song. I'm like, that's the song they cut? The lyrics were, are just absolutely brilliant. My wife and I were listening to it. We at times had tears running. I was like, they cut that song? You see, because we can live lives that they're compared to evil people in the world. It's like, that's a good song. And God would say, I know it's a good song. But the producer said, the problem with that song is it's not advancing the story as we need it to be. And in this production, one of the most powerful songs that he wrote was about a song at the intersection he had with his father. His father, like every other father in the village, expected, assumed that he, Sting, would work in the shipyard, just like all the other young men. And Sting came up and said, I think I'm going to go into music. Not real popular in a shipyard community. I understand this. My mom is sitting here. My father was a very practical man. He was a draftsman. He worked at the same job 40 years, driving 100 miles every day. He knew what it was to work hard. And when Steve 
who played in a rock band in high school said, what are you going to do with your life? I want to do music. It really wasn't received all that well. And I'm giving you the Sunday morning version of that conversation. Uh, I believe it started with the word what, uh, the, and then I'll stop at that that intersection. I understood the angst of, of this conversation, but you do too. The song that is so powerful in this production, the title is Dead Man's Boots. Dead Man's Boots. And in England, in that time, in that culture, when someone referred to that phrase, everyone knew what it meant, dead man's boots. Dead man's boots meant that you will be what your father is. That when your father dies, you'll wear his boots. And when you die, your son will wear your boots. And these dead man's boots will just keep carrying on and on and on and on. And Sting wrote this song and said, I I know these boots. I can't wear them. You see, from a spiritual point of view, there's something powerful here. And I brought the 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 end part of the lyrics. In fact, they're on their, your info sheet. But the end part of the lyrics go like this. These dead man's boots, they know their way down the hill. See, because where the ships were built. Because they've traveled there so many generations. The imagery in those words are powerful. These dead man's boots, they know their own way down the hill. And they can walk there by themselves and in a crushing way. And they most likely will. What are you getting at, Steve? Let me tell you. You see, we live inherited lives. Things that we learned from those that raised us. We live an inherited life from Adam, for heaven's sakes. Uh, selfish nature that just is part of us from day one. There is no manual for a two-year-old to be selfish. They have it when they come into the world. Have you noticed? I was talking to one of the gals that are getting baptized uh, uh, today, and I called, and her two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old was in the background uh, with symphonic voices, Wah! right? And I said, how old is her son? I said, how old is your son? Uh, Two-and-a-half. I totally get it. I totally get it. From an early age, we have this inherited disease called selfishness. We all have it, don't we? Huh? 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 Thank you. Just making sure. And there are things in our life that we inherit from our fathers and our mothers. Guys, I'm going to talk to you for a second. This is what we call the father's wound. The wound that we receive from our dad. The thing that... There's something there that we're like, ah, man, it's just stuck with us. Now, I'm going to honor my father today. He died 13 years ago. He was a good man. He was a provider for our home. He never missed work. He worked hard. My mom would attest to that. He provided for us. He loved us. He wasn't perfect. He had his bad habits, etc. And and I honor him. If he were here today, I'd, well, I'd, I'd cry a lot, but I and I miss him. So I want you to know that. But there are things I inherited as being raised in the South by a man who was from the GI generation who was committed to work and institution. My dad never once ever as a child or as a, a young teenager or an older teenager, we never had a heart to heart. Steve, 
You just broke up with your girlfriend. How's that make you feel, dude? How's it going for you? Heartbroken? What's, what's happening in your life? We never had that. That generation, we didn't talk about those things. And my father was a very friendly person. If he were here in our church today, like there's Charlie Mack. That's what they called him. He told stories. He loved humor. He, he was an easygoing guy. And all my life, when I was five, when I was 10, when I was 15, when I was 20, when I was 25, 30, 35, 40, I never saw my father have one friend, one true friend, a best friend, where they went out hunting or playing basketball or a movie or for a a walk on the beach, and guess what I inherited? The weight of being private, of learning to be open to other men, of being transparent. That's what I inherited that I have to fight against. And God would say, you want to be a story advancer? You want to lead the charge for the cause of Christ? Then, Steve, you're going to have to build a different kind of altar, a subplot altar that nobody else will see. And you're going to have to fight and tear it down so that it will be actually holy. So when you tell other men, you got to open up and be transparent. Steve, before you do that, shut up and build your own altar. That's where God's talking about I don't know how to be more honest with you. And I hope that's honest. I hope it's not too honest. But we need to be real with what those things are. Men, you know what happens when we brush them under the rug? We become posers. We act like it's not, it's not there. We walk around altarless, not willing to say, I'm gonna take a knife and stab it. And kill it and irrevocably give it to you, God. And the most likely, you'll have to build another altar and another altar and another altar because God wants that from you. You remember the story of Abraham. God picked this older man to be one of the earliest story advancers. And yet there came a time where God saw most likely that his love for his son Isaac was being higher than his love for God. And he said, Abraham, before you go, I got to know. Before you go, I got to know. So I want you to climb a mountain. I want you to lay that boy down. I want you to pick up a dagger and grip it as hard as you can. And I want you to drive it through his heart. Now God wasn't going to let it happen. And he stopped his hand before he did it. But in that moment when Abraham said, okay, you know what God said? You can read it. Genesis 22. You know what God said? Now I know. Now I know. You see, Gideon, I know you've built a, an altar to me. I know you've signed up for the plot. I know that you're getting ready to fight but there's another fight before you go into battle. You're going to fight the Midianites who worship this false god Baal and right within your own family it's happening. And before I can let you go to the big battlefield, there's this little small one that I've got to know. Leaders in this room, Christ has to know. He has no motel. He doesn't want anything to tower over and whatever that is. And if you don't believe you have it, fall on your knees and say, God, what is it? 
Because for me, I wish I could say I'd be a liar if I didn't say, man, I gave God the, the gluttony and the cowardice and all that. And whoo, I'm ready to go. No, I have the, that's why we're crucified with Christ daily. Watch. Here's how Christ works in our lives. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Paul tells us these words. God through Paul says this. Put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your selfish nature. And there's a list. We can go through the list. And some people will look at that, you know, hey, great, sexual immorality, I'm good there. No, no problem. But God would say, okay, maybe that's your deal. Maybe it's not. But there's a long list and you have to determine what that is between you and God. And he says in verse 7, you used to watch, walk in these ways in the life that you once Live. Peter remind us in, in chapter 2 and verse 24, First uh, Peter, Christ himself bore our sins on his tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness and by his wounds you have been healed. What we are not talking about this morning is behavior modification. What we are talking about is going to God. See the picture of baptism today? We say when we, we, we put people in the water, buried with Christ in his likeness and raised to new life. And this is a picture of what God calls us to do every morning and every day. Every day, this pastor is on his knees and say, God, I'm building a subplot altar for you to crucify those inner things that no one else can see. God, live through me, but I'm tearing them out down and I'm crucifying them before you. So back to Gideon in chapter 6 and verse 32. That day, they called Gideon Jerubael, a man with two names, a man with two altars, a man with two plots, a man with two battlefields. They called his name Jerubael. Jerub means contend, fight with. Baal, saying, let Baal contend with him because he broke down the altar. You see, he gave him a new name that day because he contended. Would to God that he would look at you and say, I'm now calling you Jerub unforgiveness. Jerub cowardice. Jerub, I talk too much. Jerub, whatever that thing is. Jerub pride. You know, there are people that whatever story they're telling, they're, have you ever noticed they're in the spotlight of every story? And God would say, I'd like to deal with that. Jerub spotlight. Whatever that thing is. Have you ever met someone who's carrying, and perhaps it's you, they're carrying an unforgiveness for years and years and years, and God would say, I would love to rename you Jerub Unforgiveness, because I don't want you to carry it because you're inauthentically advancing the story. Build an altar, crucify it, take a dagger, and put it through the heart of that unforgiveness, and say, God, help me in my helpless estate. I can't get over it. And God will say, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. Why is it important? Here's why. My wife grew up as a missionary kid in northern Japan. And so we have taken on some of the Japanese traditions. One at the top of the list is you don't wear shoes in the house. We have two boys, 10 and 11. This is a problem. Thus you have the plot and the subplot. The reason that we don't wear shoes in the house is because what's ever on the outside of the house comes in the inside of the house. 
So if there's mud on the shoes on the outside, the mud in the shoes comes on the inside. So yesterday, I'm working in the, uh, my home office. It's, it's uh, in the front of my house where the front door is. Big mistake. And so they had a couple friends over. And I swear to you, if that door opened and closed one more time, I was just going to take it right off the hinges. I'm like, what are they doing? Are they like playing tag in the house? And they're like, you know, coming in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. And I could only think of what is on the bottom of those shoes. You see, here's the deal. When we don't take the time to build an altar and take off our dead man's boots and advance the story with these boots, listen, there's no, are you ready? Distinction. There's no distinction between us and the world. The divorce rate is the same. The pornography rate is the same. The selfishness is the same. The unforgiveness is the same. And the mud of the world comes into where we're going. And God says, you see, you're not advancing the story because there's no difference between you and the world. And for light bearers, there must be a difference in order to authentically and effectively advance the story. Does that make sense? If you missed that one, you missed the whole deal. That's the why. It's important. Watch this. In, in the history of Israel, they did this. They kept worshiping God. They came to Sunday. They, you know, raising their hands and all that. But they didn't take off those boots. Second Kings chapter 17, verse 33. Watch. They worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. In other words, they were wearing dead man's boots and they didn't look any different. Finally, let me say to you this. And this is where we get down to the crux of who we are at 360. If I'm standing on an elevator and I've got 60 seconds to tell you who we are and I can't tell you the whole thing, here it comes. Gideon, Jerubal, was not sitting on a hillside and all of a sudden he had this revelation. You know what? I'm a chicken. You know what? I'm scared of my dad. You know what? I've never liked that whole Baal Asherah pole thing, but I never have dressed it. I, I, I don't like that. Whatever that thing is, most likely you won't be sitting on the side of a hill and all of a sudden, got it. Are you ready? Somebody had to point it out to him. And I don't know about you, but those things in my life, God sent somebody to be honest and courageous enough to say, Hey, Steve, can I have a word with you, man? See, I've had men in my life who've taken me down to the beach by myself. What are we going to meet about? I'll tell you when we get there. I'm like, Oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> I had a subplot meeting. Here we go. And in those moments... If we're willing, we can, we can leave behind a Gideon and become a Jerubel. In those moments, you have the chance, if you're willing to listen and see, this is where we blow it. I'm being real honest with you. It's where we blow it in the Christian culture. Our skin is so thin and we're so touchy that when somebody comes and says, hey, Steve, honestly, dude, you're overeating and I think there's a deeper issue. Well, I can't believe you said that, right? That's the way we are. 
I can't believe we said that. And that for, that's why Paul said, speak the truth uh, and, and love so that in all things we can grow up into Christ who is the head. If we don't have the permission to, after we've earned the right in a relationship, to speak honestly with one another, we're not only going to grow up in some things and we're going to just look like the world because we still got dead man's boots on and we're walking, advancing the story in dead man's boots because we were too touchy, too sensitive, too prideful for anyone to say, dude, I got to be honest with you, you talk too much. That's ouchy, isn't it? We don't do that in the church culture. Hey, Bob, see you next week. I love that, Bob. He talks too much. Isn't that that the way? Come on. Let's be real. Would to God that we build relationships strong enough and safe enough and honored and respected enough where we can say, Gideon, I saw the altar you built. That's pretty cool. That's really neat. But here's the deal. If we're ever in a conversation, you hear me say, here's the deal. Here comes a subplot. But here's the deal. We could change our culture where people would look and say, man, you know what? They're fighting. They're not perfect. They're not perfect. But they're fighting at those things under the hood. Is it laziness? Is it anxiety? Is it selfishness? Is it greed? Is it you got to have the next toy, the next version? Is Is it machoism for guys? Is it uh, being unmerciful or uncaring? There's a whole long list. Is it spotlighting? Whatever those things are. You know what your thing is, right? So now we're going to have open mic for you to come and share. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 12, 1, as we close. Since we are surrounded by such a great company of story advancers. Read chapter 11, most of you know it. One story advancer after the next. And God said, look at them. So if we are realize that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of storytellers who are looking on, let us take off our dead man's boots and everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles so that the world will see authentic story advancers. I love how... Sting closes this this song out. And as we pull up the lyrics of this song, he says these were these dead man's boots. You see, they know how to operate on their own. They know their own way down the hill. They can walk there by themselves and they most likely will. But they won't walk with me because I'm off the other way and I will beg you to take on this next irrevocable giving of yourself to God who would say, who in this room would say, I've had it up to here with these dead man's boots and I'm going to have my say. God would say, take these things off and let them just die. Take these dead man boots and if it's unforgiveness, God, you can have it. What is that thing in your heart, Gideon, that you don't want to show anyone else that are dead man's boots that are tracking mud For the world that they can't distinguish, God would say, take those dead man's boots and just kill them. So that you can be an authentic, transparent, and honest advancer of the story. That's difficult. Are you in? Thank you for the two dozen that said that. (laughs) Let's pray. Father.
We're here, God, to build an altar, some of us. I realize that. Not for show, not for the plot, God, but an altar of the subplot. The plot that no one sees, that sub-under plot, God, that no one sees. That thing that just keeps coming back, that knows its own way down the hill. God, could it be said of us that most likely it won't go that way? If we have no strategic plan, God, of intentionally rooting these things out in one another and for one another, God will continue to just keep walking in those dead man's boots. Father, may it be said to us, of us, God, that in this room today, there are altars being built right now that no one can see. Where, where, there, where there are some dead man's boots that are being taken off and thrown down. Altars, God, that are a proper kind of altar. I pray, God, for those in this room that are trying to figure it out, God, figure out wh what those things are most likely they knew. But I pray that they'll get close enough to someone else and begin to take those steps to get close enough to someone else so that there can be some honesty and transparency. Otherwise, God, we look like the world. And light, God, cannot look like darkness. So, God, we crucify ourselves with Christ once again. We gather our attention to those who are being baptized. May the, may the word irrevocable, God, be at the forefront of their wills and their minds and their hearts. May they be willing, God, to build those altars that no one else sees that would cost them something to give up. I pray, Father, also for those who are seeking Christ. Perhaps for the first time today, the gospel has made sense to them. Perhaps you have alerted their mind to their helpless estate. I pray, God, for the courage to move forward. And I pray, God, as we, as a, as a family, move together, that we'll crucify our touchiness and our sensitivity so that you may do the work under the hood, so that we can build proper kinds of altars and be, God, distinct. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.